I would describe myself as an accidental archaeologist. Clearly. No formal training, but uh, accidentally I got into it. And um, it's amazing what's under your feet. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Jim. Hello, Jim. Hello, David. So uh, the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? We worked, if we can say we worked, (laughs) on a project. I was definitely working. (laughs) Yeah, well, I was kind of free, like, you know. You were volunteering. I was volunteering, yeah. I was volunteering for a role as the Reverend Walter Bridges at the Candlelight Tours at Forty Hall, and you were very kindly and a wonderful director. Yeah, it was a sort of devised project, I guess, with the volunteers. So you, you guys came up with the plot to a certain extent, although I did quite a lot of work with yeah. the plot as well, and the characters as well. So you ending up playing the Reverend Walter Bridges was a sort of a real process of we got these different characters and then mm. I worked out who would be best for them. You, uh, you you took to the Reverend Walter Bridges quite quite a lot. I, I, I didn't play him every night, I must say. I, you didn't? Because, you because didn't. yeah, I had a few things that got in the way. But yeah, I, I like Walter. I mean, I thought about him. Who, who would he be? Why would he be in that house? How old he was. I went, and to be honest, I had to go away and do a little bit of research. You did, and, and I yeah. found, I found he was a real person. He really was the vicar at St Andrew's Church about that time. And he probably almost certainly had previous knowledge of St Nicholas. Funny enough, I don't know if I told you this, he went to the same school as Aid Edmondson from oh. The Young Ones, but they didn't go at the same time, no. obviously. The play that we were sort of producing, or the tour that we were sort of doing, was set in the in the, in, in the English Civil War, so mm. quite, quite a few yeah, a... years before Aid Edmondson even, even existed. But it was, it was quite interesting to find that those two people went to the same establishment. And all of the characters mm. that were sort of in the, in the tour were either based on real people that mm. existed, or they were sort of representative of, 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 of people who might have existed at the time. So generally the servants were invented characters and the, and the, and the high-born mm. people, I guess, were, the, were, were based on real people. And Reverend Walter Bridges was one of them. And you did loads of, loads of research, actually. I but think. I would and do I that in anything that. I do, because I'm kind yeah. of a bit like... Like, for instance, yourself, when we, I knew I was coming here today, I actually looked you up and found out where found you lived. Found out where <laughs> I lived and all that. Yeah, that yeah was... I'm a bit, bit of a nerd like that. Yeah. yeah, but that way, I mean, it was really good. It was good to have, I mean, and you weren't the only volunteer mm. that was interested mm. in doing research and a few people did research and, and the whole thing was, was a really interesting experiment for me of like creating a, a story mm. with, with people. It, you know, I have to commend you actually that it, to, to knit that together, these different characters, the different individual volunteer actors who kind of, in some, I mean, I couldn't be there the whole time, and I felt I was quite committed, and right. I couldn't be there the whole time, so well, it must have been a nightmare for you. Well, working with volunteers mm. means that you, mm. you kind of are, you know, you can't ask more of people mm. because they're not being paid, and mm. so, you know, you have to work with what you've got. So that was, yeah, logistically, that was probably the biggest mm. uh, difficulty of that job. But um, at the same time, I mean, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a really, I, I found it a really in, like interesting and exciting experience, and I was I was really pleased with how 
all of the volunteers got so passionate about mm. it and got it really involved in the storytelling process. It was good fun. And, and, and if, none of you had acting experience particularly. Most no, of you no. had some kind of interest that had led you there. So I guess some of the some of the younger people do do like mm. amateur dramatics because mm. the, the, there were children as well as, as adults yeah. in the show. But but most six of the, to sixty, no, sixty to. 70, 80. Right, yeah. exactly. So most of the adults were either were either there because they had an interest in Forty Hall, which is the, the place that it was set, and the Enfield Council mm. and Forty Hall were the people who hired me to do that job. But some of you had like experience of performing more in like the Olympics and stuff uh-huh. like that. Which... Is that why well, we're moving on? Well, I, did, well, no, <laughs> I like to stay with Hall for a moment, well, we, longer can, if we could. You can, sti- you can stick on I want to do a plug for Forty Hall. Yeah, sit, do. You know, it's in my hometown. If, nobody's, if you haven't been there, it's a wonderful, you know, built in 1628 there's a lot of things that go on there throughout the year it's a fact you know it's a fabulous building great atmosphere great ambience you can even get married there you know so you can, yeah. and at some point if you want to book a disco for that marriage i might be your man as well right you know. that's, so the second question i ask everybody is what do you do now which we're kind of like slightly touching on a little bit there well the, i mean the thing i'm really focusing is i'm working on a kind of a almost secret project it's a book uh, hopefully it would be turned into a book and it could even be a film but it's some deep research and it's involving a crime in america and i'll kind of need to little be a little bit vague about that because it's a very sensitive situation and I don't want to libel anyone and I don't want to get anyone into trouble that shouldn't be trouble. So that's kind of really what I'm focusing on now. But it's kind of a, a, a way of just keeping the walls from the door. I do the old disco party. <laughs> <laughs> I, I DJ a little bit at sort of different parties and I've done that yeah. for, for quite a long time now. So that's kind of like the day job. Yeah, that's sort the day of like job. allows mm. you to sort of pursue your other mm. interests mm. around that. I mean, so yeah, how long, how long have you been DJing for? I did my first party. In 1978. Right. So how okay. old were you in 1978? Well, I was not even born in 1978. <laughs> I was born in 81. I remember 1981. Really? What, what, what month? Let's see if I can remember what October. month. October. I can't. I won't be able to tell you what's number one in October 1981. Normally I can, but don't test me on that because I'll probably completely get it wrong now. Um, <laughs> Why did you start in 1978? It's fun. It, but, well, actually, that was the heyday. That was a Saturday Night Fever had come out. My brother was into it. Although I did my first part, I hadn't really started. I didn't, you know, because he was doing it and I just sort of covered a couple of parties that he couldn't do. The thing about a party is it's fun. Everyone's at their best. Everyone's enjoying themselves. There's an energy... There is a great deal of energy. The, the fact is, people will have special occasions. They're looking forward to these things, 21sts, 50th birthdays, or 50th anniversaries. Yeah. And these are important times in their life. And I'm, these are strangers to me, mostly. But I'm sharing a really important time with them. And you, you feel the love, honestly. You feel yeah. the love that, that, that this is a good thing. And uh, that's a real... You don't really make any money out of it. But it's you, that energy is undeniable. The fact that people are dancing are happy. Happiness. Yeah fantastic yeah i mean mm. i i uh when i was in school my one of my mates uh started up a, a dj mm. business like mm. when he was still in school because he you know he had to make money because there wasn't much money in his family and uh and so he had a van and like mm. the, all of the dj equipment and i i went to a lot of the dj mm. like a lot of the parties with him and and sort of like stood behind the decks like mm. helping out 
like it was lovely to every time you went to a, di- dis- a disco like mm. that he was doing you knew that you'd see strangers having a really great time hugging each other right. I mean the type of parties I do I'm not sort of one of these clever mixed club DJs I'm a party DJ right so you give the people what they want yeah and make it up as I go along I right. don't I don't I don't make I don't th- sit in my bedroom mixing all oh, this this beat sounds with this one right I'll just say I look at the profile of the crowd I see whose toes are tapping and also the other important thing to do is you you notice who the live wires are because there are always going to be some miserable sansos that are at the back they've got their pint of real ale or something like that lean on the bar and they go oh the DJ should be doing some steel ice band record or something like that nobody's ever going to dance to that but you get some old granny who's doing the can-can in, or, or whatever on the tables and if she wants ABBA for the sixth time then right. that's you know she's motivating the crowd she's right. you know, and she's dancing with the grandchildren and so the, the, I look for the people that are kind of the live wires the people that are kind of energetic and give energy into the party and um, yeah you feel that you feel that and everyone's up nobody's miserable and that's why really just I've, I've started doing them and I just carry on well, yeah I mean by my sort of quick thinking calculation which could be wrong I mean you've been doing it for what 36 years because I mean that's yeah three years did you realise I was that old (laughs) well I mean I I don't I don't really yeah uh, I'm 942 can do something for that that many years and still be and still be pretty young I've just had a a Hawaiian theme party so yeah work that one out (laughs) I I can't I can't work that out Uh, Y50 (laughs) right okay so you're 50 right I mean, yeah, you don't look mm, fifty. Actually, yeah, well, but, compliments will get you everywhere. But well, yeah, except but, for a discount. Well, yeah, but I mean, uh, but you know, what does looking fifty even mm, mean? I mean, exactly. These days, people, old people are much younger than they used to be. Right, my dad's always saying that. When I started, old people would want sort of like musical records. Um, now, people in their seventies and eighties definitely want Rolling Stones, uh, rock and roll. Some of them even want punk, you know, right. because they they was, you know, if you go back forty years, what was well, punk was kind of 40 years ago. Yeah. And so people that are, were 20s and 30s then are now in their 60s and 70s. And, that, you know, some of the music can be what they... Old people are much younger than they used to be, well, so... definitely. Mm. I mean, I agree with that. I mean, my dad's 91, and uh, so he's always saying that. 40s and new 30s mm. is, is one of the things he's always saying. And, like, I see that with, with him. I think, yeah, people... From the 60s onwards, people have moved a little bit more with the times. Like, so my dad was not was a child of the 20s mm. he was born in the 20s but he got into Leonard Cohen in the se- in the se- 70s mm. and you know what I mean like people like a, a bra- embraced pop culture I think that's I think that's what it is people mm. have started to embrace pop culture more as kind of part of yeah part of being growing older is 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 appreciating pop culture still they don't get necessarily into the new stuff what is like I mean, the young stuff. we're not as orientated towards the charts as we used to be i mean when I, mean, I was young top of the pops thursday night religious experience sunday you'd listen to the new charts on a sunday right that's when you had to be in front of the radio yeah. and, sat, and you knew exactly what was number one what was number two number was what was going up what was going down now it's because there are different charts and it's there are really no chart shows right. on the telly. People just generally don't know what's number one. Yeah, I agree with yeah. that. Pop culture sort of changed the way that it that it functions now. It's much more fragmented. Mm. People don't know necessarily. You might be into if you're into R and B, you might not have any idea what's what's big in indie stuff or whatever like that. Yeah, and, and, um, and sometimes that people ask for a, a new record, and they're actually talking about a record that was three years ago. Right. <laughs> you know, that's incidentally the current number one is fabulous. Hold my hands, lovely. Yeah, well, that's a cheery cheering. I like that. Yeah, it's my favourite. 
it's, I'm impressed that you know what the current number one is. I know, I to look it up. No, it's, it's, I, I think that's my favourite song of the year, actually, so far. Yeah. Good. So, it would be a good summer chip chip. I mean, I guess doing DJing for that many like years means you've basically had like a history of music unfolding before your eyes. Well, that's actually, that's what I remember thing. I remember places because of all the parties I've done yeah. in those areas and the years from what was number one what the big tracks were unfortunately 1981's most famous for the birdie song really you know I think you know they call call it the chicken dance in America I think yeah well I mean you know 79 to 81 is kind of like classic punk years though so I'm sure there was some good music going on as well as uh, as well as the birdie song but you know I don't don't care I I was too young to remember yeah that was the big tune of 81 (laughs) I don't I don't mind the birdie Mm. song being the big tune of my of my of my of my birth year. It I don't. Yeah, it was, I don't think it's number one. Though, so you're are. okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but sometimes it's the it's the tune that doesn't get to number one. That's the one that's remembered like quite often. Are we going to say another sort of eighty one about that period? Vienna got well, to number two. There you do go. you know the record that kept that from the top spot? What? Joel Dolce's "Shut Up Be a Face." Right. Exactly. There you also, go. John Lennon's "Imagine." Was it? I might, you might be, need to be corrected on that. I'm sure. Sure. Yeah, you get into it's it's, it's, it's tough territory when mm. you start trying to like remember mm. like exact dates and stuff on Mike. That's always it's always you're, yeah. always you're always opening yourself up to people at home going no no no. <laughs> I'll just three months me, before that. I'll just Google that. No, yeah. yeah, no, that it was definitely John Lennon and Joel Dolce. Shut up your face. Kept obviously everyone knows Vienna. Yeah, you know, but that was only a number two tune. And so I, I guess like so you sort of. Like, because one of the things that seems to me about you, from in my brief mm. knowledge of, of mm. you, because we, you know, we we've worked together, but mm. I don't like have, I don't know you that well, is that you have an interest in sort of like in the past, in history, in recording stuff, in yeah. looking at stuff. Like it all sort of broadly falls under history. Like I've always been interested in history, and um, I, I would describe myself as an accidental archaeologist, if right. you're going to put it that way. Exactly. No yeah. formal training, but uh, accidentally I got into it, and. Um, it's amazing what's under your feet. Although I would say to anyone that if you're thinking about going out and digging up your somewhere and finding treasure, it just, it just won't happen. It, it's so rare to actually find anything of any commercial value. What you're going to might find though is of historical value and interest. It's something that's actually interesting. So I tell you, I, it's quite an unusual story actually. I, where I live, we, when we moved in, took some bushes and whatnot from my old place, and when I was burying them in the new place, I found some Roman what I thought were Roman amphitheatre handles. Now, I knew that we were close to a Roman road, so I kind of that put the alert up. And uh, the upshot of it is the local archaeological society that had been up to that point sort of winding down came in and I said, look, should we dig the garden? And we did. It, we dug my garden. It took the best part of a year and it kind of re-energised. A lot of new people came in. And since then, the local archaeological society has gone from strength to strength. And uh, now there's all sorts of digs and lots of things going on in Enfield Archaeological Society. And one of the regular digs that we do every year is at Forty Hall. Right. Part of the reason you sort of found out about what was going on, is it? N- well, no, I found that out because somebody posted I was involved in the Olympic ah. uh, ceremonies and somebody posted that on the Facebook pages and um, so I had heard about that and I, but, but I did think well Forty Hall that's my manor it's just up the road for me right. and I've got a previous history with there with so, the I thought, so I thought I'd go and poke my nose in and see what's occurring and what I'm so you've brought a couple of things well, uh, that you found on archaeology yeah uh, no well these are nothing dish. greatly significant but these are the things I found at my allotment because I've got an allotment as well right and uh, I grow fabulous 
ginormous pumpkins and I can show you a fantastic picture. And uh, are these a few things I found out? Because this time of year, we're trying to get the soil ready. We're digging in the manure and, and some things crop up. Now, obviously, that's some sort of a... a if you describe it, yeah. I, I think that's about 80. I'm going to go and get this checked because I've not really seen one like so that. So ceramic or earthenware? Yeah, it's earthenware, pot of some description, small, smallish bottle. Uh, unfortunately, the top's is missing top, the top. Missing the top, but medicine may have gone in there. Some Whatever went in there and wasn't a great deal of yeah, it. So I mean, it now, been, now it's filled with earth, I guess. Yeah, that's for just in case there, there. I leave that in there just in case there is some residue in there of something. Right, that's a good, so that's a I good will, idea. That's probably about 150 years old. Well, I have absolutely no idea what this is, but I'll just describe it. It's kind of a, a handmade round ball. Uh, it's worn away at the bottom and it's glazed. It's got a kind of a purpley blue glaze and it's worn away at the bottom as if it's been pushed around as if it's some sort of a counter. Uh, yeah. Like a moving piece, right? So, and this is these are things I've just found recently. There is a game I think that has pieces. But of that's handmade. You can tell by the irregular shape. Might be go. It's been hard fired, so it's not thousands of years old, but right. it might be three hundred years old, right? And I found that, and that, that to me, I like. I'm, I'm terrible with flint. But that looks like an arrowhead to me. It does look like an yeah. arrowhead to me. And too, yeah. um, I, every time I have found flint, some things I thought were were definitely, definitely right, and some things I thought were definitely wrong, and the things that are definitely wrong <laughs> don't have to be right. The thing, but there were some flint blades found in my my garden actually, where the, the Romans, because the Roman were, we had an archaeological dig that lasted the best part of the year, and there was it turned out there were three hundred years of occupation, there were buildings, there was a, a cobbled surface, and. Uh, all sorts of things going, but the Romans had disturbed a previous feature that was there 7,000 years before that, and there was some sort of a feature, and in that feature there were some traces of pottery and there were some flint tools, so you never know what's under your feet. Right. You never know what's under your feet, although I would suggest you don't just go and dig it up willy-nilly, because the context it's in is the important thing. Right. Because that, that's what tells the story. So, But Enfield Archaeological Society, if anyone actually fancies it, are very welcoming. There's lots of brainy people. You learn a lot. You don't have to have any kind of qualifications, as long as you've got, you know, a strong back and a willing heart. That's see you're right. You know? Right. Some very brainy people. So, yeah, there's some digs coming up in the... There's normally always a big dig in the summer. So, if any fact, anybody... And there's one this year at Forty Hall. So, you can combine two things there. Brilliant. Your visit to Forty Hall to see its <laughs> wonderful... The wonderful building and just stroll down the tree line and see uh, see what's going on at Elsinge Palace. Because at the bottom there, I don't know, a lot of people do know, but just in case the people don't, yeah. there's one of Henry VIII's palaces yeah i mean I, I i know about that only because of the fact that i was looking into the history mm. when i was doing the doing the tours there mm. um, and yeah like yeah 40 hall like oh yeah overlooks elton pa- palace where various monarchs existed until till they didn't uh until it all kind of became in sort of left and uh lost what i do i'm not i'm not answering text here i just thought because while we're on the whole subject of digging and yeah and, i was trying and, to work out i was trying to work out well i just it. thought i'd show you one of my picture of one of my pumpkins aha yes it's and, whoa it's very big well actually the bbc came to film that one as part of um a program uh and that apparently the pro the the, the the script for the program was i'm rustling my bag yeah if anyone can pick say. up that noise yeah, the script for the program was people that, that that grow vegetables, but apparently I was a bit too jokey, and it was meant to be a more serious program that grew the vegetables to sustain them. You know? Oh right, okay. I've, I've got I can't come here. I, we're talking about the lot, and I couldn't come here empty-handed, so I bought a parsnip. 
Oh, picked this one earlier. Oh, wow. Uh, it's not best. It's not the best effort. I've always struggled with passing it. Well, but thank you very still, much. Yeah, it's still the the earth is still wet on it. Yeah, it's a, it's mm. it's it's you know it's a passing. <laughs> <laughs> not a brilliant one, but no, it's, it looks good. But we're at the end of the kind of. I mean, this is one of. That's very kind of you. But, uh, yeah, I've received a parsnip, and to say about the the um, the pumpkin, I mean, it's it's kind of like it's very big. Yeah, I don't that, know how to how uh, how to describe that was two, that was two hundred pounds when I got it on the scales. Right, um, that was a, a, a brand. If you're interested in buying big pumpkins, Atlantic. That was the variety. So it's much bigger than a human head. It's like you know, very very big. Oh no, it's you. You could put uh, right. You need two two two. It's a two two man job to right. get. Right, you'd have to have two people to just yeah. pick it up. Mm. Right. Yeah, I mean, what do you do with a big pumpkin like that? I guess make a big <laughs> make a big soup. You could honestly, the you fill your freezer, right? And at the end of the year, you just get it all out again and chuck them in the compost, and because unless you really like pumpkin soup, there's <laughs> not really much you can do. So the, you the, can use. It, is the joy is what you're trying to do then b- grow a big pumpkin just, yeah, to, no, just, I, just to say you've done it I think that's why I ended up on the cutting room floor in this program because it's it wasn't essential it was, yeah no the um, you can add pumpkin to all sorts of things to thicken is it, if you add cornflour you can yeah. add pump, pump, well, you know. pumpkin makes a pretty good soup and a yeah. pretty good stew I mean there's it's definitely loads of things that are good mm. with pumpkin I think but yeah so I mean yeah allotment then how, how long have you been allotting um <laughs> Five, five or six years now for started it it was funny enough when I first arrived at the allotment and I was just starting the first couple of days I looked over the corner of my eye and I was, there was a film crew there and I thought what's going on there so I wandered over and there was Joe Swift and it was where they were filming at the time Gardener's World and I didn't actually know who Joe Swift was but he must have been important because they were pointing the cameras towards him <laughs> you know, he must right. be the so I said alright mate I pretended I, I knew him so yeah, that was quite that was quite intriguing. So in that time, I've got onions down to a fine tea. I've got the pumpkins. We're doing all right with them. Rhubarb is a great success, but I'm, I've never particularly done well with parsnips. But I've got a plan this year for parsnips because what happens is it's like a root vegetable, like carrots, and they grow. They start off at the seed at the top and they grow down into the ground. If they hit a stone or an obstruction, then or they split. Of, or whatever, they yeah. split, or they just kind of stop growing, and they end up on. I don't know if you remember this on as a funny shaped carrot on this uh, th- uh, that's life right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where they end up in those funny shapes but um so what i'm going to do this year i've built some raised beds and i've sieved the soil into the raised beds so right. hopefully I'll, the seeds will just grow down nice and straight so your parsnip next year will be a lot better right i mean yeah. are, you, are you and are you sort of designing like growing the the vegetables to show as well as no to, I wouldn't just, go, to, just to eat no because that requires a lot of dedication and uh, I, I I tend to do things for fun yeah. rather than for competitive reasons yeah right I'm not, I'm not sort of alpha male must win at all costs so right. I, don't, I don't really you certainly not no, no. So, and how long have you been an accidental archaeologist? For? Well, this was this. Uh, what was it? Two thousand, right. two thousand one, I think. Wow, so like and uh, although over, I've not been on many digs of late, one thing I did find is at Forty Hall. What I pointed out, the glass head. Yeah, um, right. That's in right. In that display case, yeah, that was found. I did. I found that in an unusual way. Somebody was in the hole digging, and they what they do is they they clear, scrape the site, you know, the area they're working on away, and then they put all the spoil into a bucket, and somebody tips that away. And I, of course, I saw it from a, a long way off. I thought, what's that just been put in there? And uh, he, that, nobody near to it realised. 
and I me standing on the sidelines, I saw her out and put down and said, Have you missed this anyone? You know, and type wow. thing. And and that's of that that finds of national importance. It's a Venetian glass figurehead. Wow. So you you spotted a, a, an object of national importance that From was nearly, being, way, nearly yeah. being thrown away. <laughs> well, it was thrown, yeah. Right, <laughs> in the process of being thrown yeah. away, and you captured it. Yeah, so. uh, which is you know, I guess the, the nation thanks you. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> it's, um, there's uh, another piece of uh, people that go to the Dugdale Centre. There's an iron candlestick holder, right? The Dugdale Centre in Enfield. In Enfield, and that was found in my garden. And that at the time looked like a big piece of rubbish, a rusty old piece of metal. But luckily, Martin, who's the site director on all these digs, is uh, professional. He's a lecturer of archaeological studies. I'm not sure where. And he's re- he's the guy that picked this rusty old piece of metal. And he realised what it was. That was kind of almost consigned to the recycling bin as well. Wow! Uh, so you, you, yeah. you keep you're capturing all of the the things that are nearly getting lost. Well, they they do look like rubbish some, sometimes, and you don't really know what there is. But it's amazing where, where we are now. There'd be you could go out there and you could find you could dig down a little way and you could find you might there might be a Roman road or right. <laughs> or, or, or some activity that predates this house by a thousand years well yeah mm. well everywhere we are is is, mm. is, is built on history for mm. sure for sure we've sort of almost teased this a couple of times mm. but you, you you found out about you found out about what we were doing at 40 Hall you, mm. as you said through the Olympics stuff. yeah well so, the Olympics so Facebook page right so how did you get involved in all of that sort of thing well, when I I was all a pro Olympic person, because I, I I well, I did marathon running when I was a kid, and uh, I, that was my sport, and I, I liked the idea of not I'm, I'm no good at football or anything like that, I'm no good at sort of competitive sport, but the whole spirit of keeping going and doing your best, I, I love that, and uh, anyone can run a marathon because you just got to take one more step, you know, right. if you can wait, run one step, you can, although it seems impossible, it's not impossible, you just do one more step. So, right. so when I was uh, in my youth, I, I ran. Um, oh, I must. To, I've got a little side story for me to tell you about yeah, my marathon ahead. stuff. Yeah, one of my marathons, I went to Bolton, and it was that at the time. It was the I think that was the second biggest marathon in Britain. There was about ten thousand, twelve thousand people, and I'd left my my booking of the place at the hotel was very late, and so I thought I'd just turn up the race HQ and see which was in the Packhorse Hotel, I think, Bolton. Bolton. And um, I, I just see if they've got any info or they can help me and steer me in the right direction. And so I went there and the, and the receptionist said, no, you've got no chances. Thousands of people have come from all over the world. Everywhere in Bolton will be fully booked. Um, you, you, you'd have to go back to Manchester sort of thing and see if you can come back out, you know, on the race day. And uh, But as luck would have it, the race organiser, and I forgot his name now, he was a famous athlete of the... 70s was in the reception and said oh someone from the Polish team didn't turn up there's a room here available so I stayed there at the race HQ so that night I went down for the dinner and the waitress said we're really busy can we put you with these other gentlemen so I sat at that table just like we're at now with four, three other chaps and we were talking about the race and where we might do and I said well I'm not very fit I'm you know, I've not, I've not really trained for this. If I if, if I bust four hours, I'll be lucky. And I said, well, what about you? So he said, well, actually, I won it last year. And the other chap said, well, I'm the European champ. And the other guy said, I'm the world record holder. <laughs> so I had to change the subject, you know. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. There was I with three of the best <laughs> marathon runners in the world. And I was thinking, I would do well if I'm doing four hours. So, <laughs> so, so that, that was my, I, that one pretty well ended my marathon running career because I thought that I'm never going to beat the chaps like these, you know. So, yeah, we've moved on to the Olympics. Well, 
either side story there if you're interested in this one. Side stories are always welcome. Yeah, you can edit these out. Um, no, no, I, probably, I, 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 I <laughs> nearly, nearly definitely won't. Two, in 2000, I was one of the parties I was booked to play at was um, at Royal Festival Hall and it was an after-show party for a load of dancers and these dancers had were the dancers that were the professional dancers of the um, Olympics in Australia, the Sydney Olympics. And what they'd done was on Saturday they had performed, I think it was on the show was on Saturday, they had performed the Olympic opening ceremony, got the plane, come to England, and this was about the Wednesday. So after the jet lag, and, uh, jet lag had uh, worn off, they did a show for the good British public and they had their after-show party. And I was talking to the dancers and it was just the dancers. There was no bar... So it was just me, there was no general public, there was no press or anything, so it was just me and the dancers, and I'd said I hadn't seen the show. So what they did, they all lined up, and they did their opening mm. routine just for me. Wow. So on the Saturday, they did it for the whole world, and on the Wednesday, they did it for old Jimbo. And I, at the time, thought, this is these people have got so much energy, so much, they had so much fun in them, I thought it must be absolutely fabulous to be in a show like the Olympic opening ceremony. So... Little did I know, 12 years later, I would be. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what had happened is after that, it was sometime about 2000, 2002, 2003, it started to be rumoured that we might bid for the Olympics. And there was a thing where you could sign up to support the bid or back the bid. So I did that straight away. And uh, you get kind of regular updates and they tell you what they're doing. And got to 2007 and lo and behold, we, we got it. So I was a bit chuffed about that, and um, I thought I'll see if I can volunteer to be a games maker. And I was a games maker. I was, a, I was, I had a really cushy number. I was on the recreation team in the athletes' village, a very small team, for the Paralympics. So I got to see all the people when they're celebrating because there was a kind of a, a pub there. It didn't have any beer, but they could bring their own beer in if they wanted to. Uh, but there was like video machines and uh, pool tables and if they want to play pool with you or if they want you know a lot of people that never played on a, a PlayStation before so you got to show them how to do all that kind of caper and uh, it was all good fun taking the pictures you know but I didn't really know who any of them were to be truthful with you I'm not really a sporty kind of I like the idea of people strug- you know striving to do their best but not I'm not a sports fan as right, such, so I right. don't really I I I, I, I I think, think, think possibly that's why they wanted to meet someone like that, people like that in that role, because we weren't awestruck by, it's so-and-so. Or, like, but when they started coming at the end of the day with their gold medals <laughs> hanging around, <laughs> hanging around in there, you think, well, that must be somebody quite right, important. Right, right, right. So, yeah, opening ceremonies. Right. Should we get on to that? Yeah. I know, I sort of... I mean, it was, a big, it was a big opening ceremony that we had. We, yeah, uh, I was proud to be part of it. But what happened was... I'm not sure how that I because I suppose I expressed my interest quite early. Um, I got an email to say, "Would I like to audition?" Yes, straight away. And I, I thought, no way would I ever. But I'll audition. It's worth always worth giving it a chance. Yeah, chance. So I went went to Three Mill Studio, and uh, I thought I haven't really got a chance, but I'll give it my best. And I, I absolutely did. I was jumping about. If they said jump, I'd jump as high as I could. If they said leap to the left I'll leap as far to the left as I could all that kind of business and um, well I wasn't sure I thought I'd completely blown it but by the time I got home put my computer on got an email you've made it through to the second audition I couldn't believe it you know yeah. Uh, to, for it to be that quick you know so I went to the second audition I still didn't expect any kind of success but this is this great experience. I'm at Three Mill Studio. Give it another chance. Ch- and sh- if I could tell you what we started off by warm up things, there was a, 
a big game of what's the time, Mr. Wolf. Right. So I thought, if we're doing it, I might as well enjoy myself doing it. Yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. so I sort of did it. I tried to just creep up on the person. Like, do you know Mr. Time? Where you yeah, have to I know that. Creep game. up. Yeah, and right. So I tried to do it in Scooby Doo. And you have to stop when they turn around. And I tried to do it in Scooby Doo fashion, you know, where, you know, they sort of do that kind of on yeah. tiptoes. Right. And, well, I think that strategy paid off because they then started to t- take us through some sequences of movements different movements and uh, it was a bit tricky because there was a person there was different groups being auditioned at the same time in the room and there was lots of noise and it was a bit difficult to follow instructions but I generally was following the person in front of me seeing what they were doing because that person was following the person in front of them right and so on but the person in front of me and the person they they weren't very good so I wasn't very good as a consequence and we had to keep moving forward and yeah it was all a bit confusing but I, got, I did give it my best shot. I mean, that was the thing. I did um, I, I did take it seriously, I, seriously as I could. I'm going to have a slurp of tea. Do you mind? Yeah, no, of course you don't mind. Slight slurping that's sound because I feel a bit there. of dry mouth. That's what the tea's there for. Well, yeah. I didn't expect. I thought I'd completely blown it, but there was something to tell the kids about, or the grandkids eventually, that I had auditioned for the ceremonies of the Olympics and whatever they were going to be involved whatever was going to be involved at least I was there I I tried and um, anyway I didn't hear anything more that was I think that was late November 2011 so Christmas came and went 2011 and early in the new year it was about January the 5th I checked the emails and it said Olympic ceremonies cast offer and I thought I've been offered a plate what could they want me for and so it didn't take any sort of time at all just to say, I accept this offer. And just well, I would just see what it was. So we waited a while, and then it was May the 4th, Star Wars Day. Right. Yeah. May the 4th be with you. Yeah. Exactly. Um, well, 30 years ago, that was a good gag, but everyone knows yeah, yeah. it today. <laughs> um, so that was, that was my first rehearsal, and that was at the Three Mills again. So we did, what happened was we were in small groups, and there were 25 of us in each group. And the dance captain sort of shirt. We were made quickly aware that there was going to be some sequences of kind of industrial kind of movements. So we did this kind of like warm up. And then what happens, we all gathered. There's about two. If you saw it in the Olympics, there was a thousand of us in that sequence of what were called working men and women. There were a thousand drummers and there was about 500 other people that were kind of in the parades. But our group of a thousand working men and women divided into groups of 200 for these small for initial uh, rehearsals. And at those, that first one, uh, we were also given the whole heads up about what the show would involve. We were shown a video of what the, uh, what it was hopefully going to be right. like. With This was computer generated graphics and there was... A little bit of live action of stuff they had filmed earlier in the week because I was this was a Friday, so there'd already been some other rehearsals. Then we started to be introduced to the people that were putting the show together, and like Toby Sedgwick, who was the um, who he was the movement coordinator, the, head, the right. chief movement coordinator. He was he's the guy that did the choreography for Warhorse, you know, the stage play, yeah. and um, other people. Steve Boyd, he's um, he was in overall charge of the mass movement team. And Steve, he's worked on every Olympic since the beginning of time almost, and at every mass kind of big event. So he would have done, been the guy in charge of Beijing, uh, Sydney, um, 
yeah. yeah, way back. He, go, he goes way back with the Olympics, but also he would have worked in um, Commonwealth Games opening ceremonies. And, and all, when there's lots of people, Steve Boy is the guy that you call to get them moving in the right direction in the right way. And the other chap that was there was Danny Boyle. And sure. he's Danny Boyle's the guy that we all gathered around in smaller groups, and he just talked to us sort of personally, more or less, about the whole vision of how we would change the scene because we we were once the first to see the kind of model of the Olympic ceremony with all the grass laid out and the trees yeah, and the, yeah. and we we saw that and he showed us this and and he said what we've got to do is all that kind of idyllic countries we've got to wreck it and build some chimneys and some factories and and uh, because that's basically what happened in England yeah and that that changed rippled out the, to the rest of the world right. that industrial revolution and so if we're having the Olympics in England that is our that's us you know yeah, absolutely and and, there was, and they played this track and it was the first time I'd heard the track and it was by Underworld and I thought it was fantastic because of being my DJ dance yeah. kind of thing I thought that is that tune that tune has got some guts on it you know that's yeah. that's uh, uh, I, like, I like the tune but we weren't, we weren't allowed to hear it again after it wasn't until very late in the stages because it was still being worked on. Right. Uh, all we got to hear when we do rehearsals, we have in ear monitors, and uh, you know Steve Boy is, t- is talking to us from the control tower, and all we're hearing is if we're moving, we're hearing a tick tock, tick tock, tick tock sound to move in a kind of a rhythmic way. Okay, so you were dancing to a click track. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, there is a fabulous piece, uh, uh, absolute genius. Um, I'm not sure which county. I perhaps didn't explain that. The idyllic landscape of uh, rural Britain was divided into different sections, and these different sections, different teams, if you like, were in charge of different sections, and these teams were div- uh, were called counties. So A was Ayrshire. Ayrshire. What's the word? Ayrshire. Yeah, Ayrshire. Ayrshire. Yeah. B I think was Berkshire. C was Cornwall. Uh, D was probably Devon. Right, right. I was in County J, which was Jersey. Right, uh, okay. Which I don't think you're in County, so they just took Jersey. Yeah. And uh, so I was a Jersey boy, and uh, at one point we wrote to the, um, somebody wrote to the Jersey Tourist Board, and they very kindly sent us a load of flags and hats and (laughs) stuff like that and posters. So, yeah, there's a great picture on our Facebook page of us behind a Jersey flag. And there's a bit of rivalry in the stadium, because we got to sit in the stadium while we waited, and other counties, they would have T-shirts, I love Cornwall or um, so forth. And um, we had our flags and we would be waving them around. So that was great. Yeah, but one of the other, one of the chaps in one of the other counties, he, on the night, the actual show, he, I think he must have purloined an extra radio receiver and he actually recorded um, what was actually being said to us in our ears, and if you and he, and he filmed it, so there is a, a. If you go on YouTube, if you look for that, it's um, it's something like opening set hidden camera, and it's a great. You 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 will hear what we heard, okay. you know, our instructions and uh, uh, what was said to us, and, and particularly the bit at the end where the flames are coming down and what the people are saying to us in our ears is yeah. And but, what what was it like when you actually did it? I mean, when you on the actual day. Well, for me, because um, I've got this background of, of being non-plussed, you know, the big build-up to somebody's special occasion or, or something like that, big build-up to a... Spe- and then it ha- then you're doing it. So I look at it in a kind of professional way. I'm not, oh, my gosh, you know, there's going to be cameras there. And right. I, I, I'm, I'm 
I'm perhaps more nervous now sitting here at your kitchen table, right. um, surrounded by all this high tech gear. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, is it was a job of work. I wanted I how in my mind I thought well the Olympics are coming to Great Britain. I want it to be as good as I can possibly help make it. My for my bit, I will do my bit. And it was surprising actually just how many people who weren't from London or from Great Britain as, as I mean in my I've got another photograph I could show you and there are people literally from America from India from mm-hmm. from um, Korea it's, it's was London is a, a big melting pot of people from all sorts of different places yeah and they kind of felt the same way they felt they wanted to make it as best as they could make it for their hometown even though perhaps they were born thousands of miles away um, so there was this atmosphere of we, we professionalism you know, because um, we we were the working men and women, so we were kind of seriously minded. We wanted to do the, the job as as best we could. Um, but at the back of it, we knew that it was great fun. You right, know, great fun. It, right, and you were all volunteering to yeah. do that work. I mean, yeah. it was it was. I guess so. You, I mean, it wasn't paid, was it? it was it no, was, it was just you were doing it for the love and for the for caring about the. I guess the. Some people will have been doing it for the Olympics. Some people will have been doing it because they like the sense of community or spe- spectacle or, or all of that stuff. Well, I just wanted to make my bit the best I could make it. And you had to have... Uh, you had to be dedicated because the rehearsals... After We did a few rehearsals at Three Mills, which was a nice indoor... But then we moved outside where the whole group, the whole... All thousand, one thousand of us. Um, and then after that, subsequently, the... Um, the, the drummers, they were the marshals. That was another group of a thousand. So there was two. We all we all um, rehearsed outside, and of course, that period of time, if you look back, it was shockingly rain. It was raining right. all the time, and we was uh, rehearsing in a uh, a car park which which had been hastily tarmacked over because it was a the old fall plant in Dagenham. And uh, the first couple of times we were there, it was um, very, the potholes and all the rest of it. So what they did was they turned tarmac to all over, but there was no drainage. So when it rained, the water just sat there in a big pan. And we, we were picking up things, the turf and the other bits and pieces, and seeing them over on our shoulder, but it was absolutely soaking. And then the director would say, take two, so we <laughs> have to do it all again. And um, yeah, you had, you had to be dedicated. Am I interfering with the sound? I've just moved in my seat. Don't worry. About yeah. It. yeah, we had to be, you had to be dedicated, but this was the biggest show that any of us would ever be involved in. Um, people say it's a once in a lifetime experience, but if that was true, everybody in their life would do it once. So it wasn't, it was a kind of a rare lifetime experience. So I wouldn't make the most of it. I didn't take, I didn't miss, you were allowed to think, I think take two, miss two rehearsals. I didn't miss any of them. I always got there early, you know. Because I want to make most of it. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, I mean, a f- and a few people who were volunteering um, with the Forty Hall project um, w- had also been in the Olympics. Ceremony. Yeah, and it seems to be to me to have given everybody the kind of a bug for volunteering. Like a lot of people were saying, "Oh, I volunteer in this. I volunteer in yeah. that." You know, that's why they'd come to do Forty Hall, and people were doing more stuff. And I guess a, a community kind of came out of that that Olympics thing and that's what you're talking about the uh, the Olympics Facebook group it seems like that everyone's talking yeah. on their still we're still in touch right. there's, there's, there are quite a few things going. Pandemonium drum, Drummers um, they do lots of gigs can I plug the Vision Choir which up, up to recently I was a, 
a keen member, but I've had, because of circumstances, it's a bit difficult for me to actually attend recently, but they're doing a show at the Royal Festival Hall as part of a, a bigger show on Easter Monday. Um, yeah. They're, they're the, um, you know, singers, they're cast members who the Vision Choir is, uh, if you are an Olympic cast member, <laughs> get yourself off to the Vision Choir, it's fantastic, to, you know, we've got a fantastic choir master and really brings the best of your voice out. Um, well, one of our cast members came from Liverpool. Yeah, in... I know. I was amazed at that because he was he was coming to volunteer in London, so he was regularly yeah. coming from Liverpool. from Liverpool to Enfield mm. in London to yeah to to, to do a, a, a to do a volunteer show. So there's no there was no pay, um, mm. and he was you know yeah that that was a, 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 an amazing amount of commitment. I thought a lot of people that were in those ceremonies did come. I mean, in my small group of twenty five people. Uh, because they're the people you kind of they're the people I met on the first night the second night and right. you sort of they're the people around you I was bib number 913 so bib numbers right a few, you, you're perhaps not mixing you, yeah. yeah you're not really mixing with the people in other counties you say hi, everyone was very friendly everyone's talked if you just sat down next to someone you just talk as if you're old friends although you've never spoke to them before but the, the group of the 25 there were people there was one chap um, from Portsmouth who came up there was another girl from Leicester that came down um, there was another chap that um, he wasn't he was a little bit further away but he told me that he worked in the best theme park in the country and I said oh what you mean Blackpool he said no no, Walton Towers, but I'll have to give you that one because uh, that's the other thing I really love is uh, theme parks and roller coasters. I don't know. I prefer Walton Towers to Blackpool. Oh, I don't. No, no. I, I stand firm on that. I mean, I, I've been to both quite a few times. Yeah. yeah. The thing about Walton Towers, it's too spread out and with Blackpool, you get off one ride straight on another. That is true. But yeah. then, like, I don't know. Once we got... I tried to persuade my, 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 my girlfriend to... Uh, to, to, to get into roller coasters mm. and then I finally got her to go on one and it was the big one in in, in, uh, in Blackpool and uh, it sort of broke down at the, in the middle so we were like up there for I'll ages before bad, we went bad, bad experience. No, I didn't have a bad mm. experience but she did and that, that put her mm. off going on future well, roller coasters so I sort of hold that against Blackpool I guess. Yeah, that's but, possibly. Uh, right, but I, I, well, the thing about the big one is you've got that big drop at the beginning. Yeah. And then after that, it does peter out. It's not. It's that one big drop. Yeah. Whereas um, Alton Towers got Oblivion, exactly, which holds you there for a minute, and you anticipate that fall. And then when that fall comes, I I, I do like Oblivion. I love Oblivion. Yeah. I lo- well, I yeah. love. I, lo- I mean, I really like Alton Towers. I used to go there quite yeah. regularly as a kid, like yeah. growing up. And I haven't been back for ages, but I, I, I kind of been thinking about going back. There is another of, of fine late. historical building there at Alton Towers. That's that history of that big building. Yeah. There's a ride actually, the Hex, uh, Alton Towers. Have you... I haven't been for a while. Oh, so... okay. uh, well, I haven't been for that because we've moved on to Blackpool and other, like uh, Florida and other theme parks. I mean, my kids are a bit bigger now, so we can go further afield. But, right. uh, but there was a ride there and it, it dealt, tells the story about the previous. And I'm going from quite some time ago, the memory of some, quite some time ago, but it tells the story of the previous lord of Alton Towers being approached by a witch and um, him casting her aside. She puts a curse on him and says, every time a branch will fall off that tree, you, remember your family will die. So 
that night a branch did fall off the tree and a member of his family did die. So he went, and apparently this is historically true, according to the right, right. <laughs> he chained all the, and tied all the branches up on the tree so none would fall to the ground. And uh, this was discovered when the workers were uncovering a, a secret part of the building and they've built a whole ride out of it. It's quite a good ride, actually. You know, okay. And a whole ride experience. So you've got this kind of history bit that may or may not be true. You actually see a little bit of the archaeology involved of them, you know, where the sort of the vault area that they uncovered, and apparently they moved a bookcase or and found a whole area that they didn't know existed there at the at the forty um oh, that's in the at, forty towers. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you can see uh, where this interview's going. At <laughs> Alton Towers, I mean, and that's the yeah, I mean, that's the funny thing. Everywhere's got history, be it a theme park or be it a, a local house or whatever. Yeah, there's always stuff going on. I mean, so yeah, a kind of sense of community built around that Olympics thing, and people have carried it on, which is kind of it's and it's interesting that that's happened. The people I talked to about that Olympics experience, it was kind of like it, it was like it, it had been a life changing experience in that it made them want to do more of this sort of stuff. Yeah, I think I, I suppose on that night, I mean, for me personally, because I had the background of all these parties, people right, you do it all the time anyway. Uh, right? Yeah, it's me it's every day of the week, you know. Um, that experience, I know that will never come again. That was a unique thing, and I think afterwards, in the wake of that, that everyone was a little bit shocked that we managed to pull it off. Because right. everyone was saying before, oh, the traffic could be terrible and, and uh, there'd be terrorist attacks and everything. But afterwards, I mean, there was one or two grumbles, but honestly... Oh, yeah, it was a big hit. It was a big hit. It was a national hit. I mean, every, everybody really mm. liked that opening ceremony. And even people who'd been really cynical mm. about the Olympics mm. before, that, mm. before that ceremony had really enjoyed it. I mean, I saw a few bits of it, so I mean, but so I can't really comment on the whole mm. thing but I know a lot of people yeah. were inspired by I mean it looked at stuff that people weren't expecting right it looked at the industrial revolution yeah. it looked at class it looked at like a lot of various things that people and it, you know it praised the NHS it praised mm. a lot of things that you could say the government at the moment isn't very in favour of so in mm. some ways it kind of undercut the the government mm. and sort of and got behind and the people got behind that which it was wasn't kind of glossy nice. you yeah. know but you know, if people compared it to Beijing, but Beijing, I, I'm, I'm not 100% true on this, but I, my understanding was that the performers in the Beijing, on, on the whole, they were part of the military. They were young, fit men that were, they weren't volunteers in the same way we were, right. sort of doing, working in banks during the daytime and, and doing this other thing. You know, they were, they were young, fit, and they had to endure quite very, very r- rigorous rehearsals. And their budget was considerably more than ours. So ours was never going to be as technically beautiful. It was going to be something else. So obviously what Danny Boyle and, and the team just said, well, what, who, who are we? What are we going to do? And uh, let's mash it up. Let's yeah. just cram everything in. Yeah, yeah. Just throw loads of references and there'll be in-jokes that we get and everyone else, maybe nobody else gets, but that's okay. And But that's Great Britain, really. Yeah. We, we are a mix of everything. Yeah. Loads of you pour a load of stuff in, you get a load of stuff out, and um, that's why from this small place that we live, not not you know, you, it's almost walking distance, isn't it, from coast to coast? Right. Um, yeah. But it's it's no it's no big place, but we've done some great big things, and um, it was something to be proud of, and that's kind of what our ceremony was. It was to say, hey, even the Olympics themselves, you know, were modelled on what happened at Much Wenlock, you know, when the, the founder of the modern Olympic movement looked at 
you know, staging international games, he looked at the games at Much Wenlock, which were themed on the kind of original Olympics way from way back when. Yeah, but from the Greeks. From yeah. the, and uh, the, the modern Olympic movement, yeah, we can even take some credit for that, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, and, and and again, it's interesting that you know, one of the ways that you are thinking about the Olymp- the Olympics is through the lens of history. And again, mm. like what you were doing at the Olympics was kind of telling the history mm. of the country. It's, it's 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 interesting that like I guess partly it's the way you look at the world is through historic. Like it seems to me, but also it just so happens that the things you get interested in happen yeah. to be to fit that historic. Well, I do plan to live forever, but I suppose at my age, I might have to consider that there's more history behind me now than there is in front. You know, right. um, but no, I plan to live forever. So, you know. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. fair enough. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so yeah, I mean, so the last uh, question that I ask people is do you have anything to plug well hmm. stage i hinted at this mysterious thing that i was doing this this thing i can't really talk about too much now because um there is a very i'm researching and i've spent an awful lot of time on it researching a uh, quite controversial thing that happened in america and where a child was taken into america illegally and and some pretty bad things happened and what happens hmm, this child is now in prison for murder that I'm 100% sure he didn't commit and the Americans refused to him access to the British consulate and if that had happened that the details of the murder and the case and the evidence would have all been examined although the Americans uh, um, are entitled to investigate a crime how you know or any country is entitled to investigate a, a crime in their way um so if you go abroad, you know, if you do the crime, you're going to do the time. But uh, what would happen is the British Consul would have looked at the surroundings, how he arrived there in the first place. And all that is very suspicious. Uh, I have to be a bit vague, vague about it about because it. because but, this guy's still in jail today. Right, so and, what and you say could have repercussions on, on him, a real person. And we're in, in a sensitive point where the, 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 for the first time the British Foreign Office is now involved and there is some movement to actually examine this case and the evidence around it, and I don't really want to jeopardise anything. But in a few weeks or months, we can have another little chat yeah, about this thing. And honestly, on. it's yeah. an absolute stormer of a story. Um, it's kind of a cross between the lost child of Philomena Lee, um, the rock with a person being a British citizen being held in, you know, that the British authorities knowing. Right, which is a sure, the, which and, sure the and the Shawshank Redemption, because this guy, there's been a guy that's been in jail now for over 30 years. Well, well that, if, if, if it's a cross between those three uh, popular films, then, yeah. uh, <laughs> then it'll, it, 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 yeah, I guess maybe there's a film. Yeah, might even be a newspaper article about right. it. <laughs> so, and so that's what you're working on. At the yeah, that's what I'm working on, because I feel this chap has had some massive injustice in his life, and I've kind of put everything else on hold to help out and have you done stuff like that before like no. this is kind of like investigative journalism slash history no slash no kind of no research. i mean i i do like to follow things up for instance the role of walter bridges right. i wanted you really, to find you really got into that well i yeah, wanted to find out about him and find out who he was and but and if i was to do something else um i genuinely like to find out what i can well, when you were playing walter bridges didn't you sort of you went to the church the, yeah i did you, i walked around the graveyard right, right. <laughs> to get that feel but I was trying to work out whether he was a, a grumpy... I mean, we, we knew at the time that the, the, the play was set, he would have been about 29, because he was born in 1615. Yeah. Um, 16, yeah, it was back then, and he had just come to the parish. 
so he would be new, he would be new to the people, but he would have known Sir Nicholas from his time in the city. Right. So I was trying to understand. So he must have been a, a likable fellow in some ways, because why would Sir Nicholas have him in his house? Yeah, well, yeah. although that was our, our decision to, mm. to make him come to the house. But we do know he came to the area and he hadn't taken residence at the vicarage at that point. Right. So it was a reasonable assumption. Because young Nicholas yeah. was... I, I agree it was a reasonable assumption. I mean, I hope it was because that's what I made. But... You're allowed to make those. You're <laughs> artistic licence. You, you were the writer as well as the director. So Yeah, I mean, and, and what, what, what was really helpful to me about that was that... The research you did gave me some answers to sort oh. of things like like how they would how they would know each other like oh. where like other place you know you did sort of research into uh, but the connection that both of them had to Saint Bartholomew's uh, yeah. hospital and so there was things like that that really really helped me to like, make it make sense historically oh. as much as possible when it's a fiction based on based yeah. on history yeah so hopefully you might have one or two more projects like that and I can. You can well, up yeah, I mean, certainly, if I if I'm doing a volunteer mm. project, all of the volunteers who were would w- w- I worked with at Forty Hall would definitely get contacted. Mm. I mean, it was a you know, I was I I really enjoyed doing that project. You didn't you say. didn't have enough time though. That was the thing, and and uh, yeah, you know, there I, wasn't enough time. I had, it's I'd, never I'd, enough time. In I'd already had quite a lot of dates booked out in my diary anyway. Yeah, and um, so I couldn't do it, and I would, would have loved to have been there because you fill the role, and I I felt my last performance it was more or less where i wanted it to be yeah and that was my last one I'll, i could have made it better i still thought some great things to add in like you know i sort of i did change it where i thought well why would the, just to, for the listener yeah right the the reverend was in a room reading his bible he speaks to the the guests and then he has to move everyone into the next room because this is a tour we're moving around the house yeah and uh, why, why would you do that? And of course, in the script, it was to meet the children, but I felt a little bit comfortable by that. So I, I kind of did change, I put the other respect to the script, yeah, I put the I emphasis it. slightly on he really wants to meet the, see the governess, right. who's got a bit of a thing for. Yeah. And then the how we exit, I, the Reverend exits the room with the children and the governess is because the children decide to sing a Catholic song. Yeah. So Which was, that, I mean, that, and that was part of the script, to, you know, to and they sung the song, it. but the Reverend realizes that actually the governess, she's a Catholic and right. that's broken his heart. Yeah. You know? And of course the children say, Oh, he fancies you. Or he, and then she could have said, not anymore. He doesn't, you know, sort of thing. Yeah, no, it was great. Yeah. That sort of little subplot that you mm. were putting in was, you know, was, I, I enjoyed it and mm. I'm sure the audience did as well. And it's, well. it's, and it's an interesting thing, you know, at that point, you know, Walter Bridges wouldn't have been celibate. So no, he, totally he would have been able totally to get married. And, and, but I couldn't find any evidence of him actually getting married. No. So that maybe that was it. He had a lost love that was never be and just held a candle to <laughs> it. But, but yeah, I mean, I did like, I, you know, that's one of the things. Somebody might enjoyed. correct me. Sorry, sorry to talk over, but some, and I do that a lot. So Don't worry. But, um, but somebody might actually research that and find that he was married. Yeah, you know? that'd be interesting. So if anybody does yeah. find that out, well, we're protected in that we were only basing it on on on, uh, on history rather than trying to be historically mm. accurate. So we can we mm. can make up as many kind of uh, lost love stories. As yeah, we like. yeah, it could have been married, but I don't. I, I didn't find any evidence of him getting married. But you know, records of that time are limited. Yeah. And... Well, I enjoyed your approach as well because you were like really like for you it was a he was a living, breathing character that you wanted to get to know mm. and all of those sorts of things. Mm. And you know, as someone you haven't got a background necessarily in performance or anything like that so it was really enjoyable mm. to see you doing that stuff just naturally just out oh. of your own interest you know it was really good 
So yeah, I mean, you know, and I enjoyed doing that project a lot. Yeah, so I'm all right playing reverends, but I might move and specialise in some other areas. You know. So yeah, absolutely. Well, you yeah, absolutely, and you're and I'm interested to see how this uh, kind of journalism research kind of uncovering goes. And yeah, it's uh, it's just a different kind of uncovering. You know, you do archaeological digs, you uncover yeah. stuff. You, <laughs> you know, this is a different That's, uncovering. Yeah, I suppose it's always the search for what you don't know. Right. And as soon as you know it, it's not that interesting anymore. But in this particular, <laughs> the, the 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 thing in America, we are talking about a person. Yes. Who has been unjustly in jail and denied certain things yeah. i access the Brits consulate which which uh which is pretty shocking to be honest in this right. day and age and the, the uh, but what's caused the confusion in case anyone you know what's caused the, it was because the illegal way he was taken as a as a, a baby into america it created confusion who he what his actually identity actually was right but it's taken a vast amount of research to find that out right and uh, to track that all down but now it's is confirmed there is the sticky question about how the American you know the American courts and they, they knew he was from England why they didn't inform the British consular at the right. time and I know why but yeah it was, to, it was to hide the details of the murder right and uh, that that is a whole sticky kind of thing that's why I have to be vague yeah because uh, you know but watch this space uh, watch there's, this a lot space. To, there's a lot to tell listen to this space yeah, yeah. And uh, and yeah and and so I guess if people want to like, are you, are you available for bookings for your DJ stuff? Are you online? Yeah. For that? I mean, do you want to Pro- give you? Do you wanna I don't really that? plug myself. I'm easy to find on the old in in e malarkey. Uh, yeah, I'm easy to find. <laughs> yeah, I know this by Pro Mobile. Pro Mobile. You know, if you Google Pro Mobile, Pro Mobile, Pro Mobile Disco dot com. There we uh, go. But there's, there's lots of people use that term in there. Because it's quite well placed on the internet, but I don't. I'm, I'm yeah. You expect to hear an answer from the machine if you phone, because there's so many people that phone me up all day long. Right. You know. So you get a lot of bookings. Really, you don't well, need to advertise. A lot of them. <laughs> no. Well, I, I, on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've done a few of these, so I know what I'm doing. Really. Yeah, you know. that's good. It's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you. I feel yeah. like I've 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 learned lots of things about you and and received a received a parsnip. Well, yeah, free parsnip of every interview. I don't get a parsnip from many of my guests, oh. you know, and the the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience thank you for listening I I know I've bumbled on and waffled on and but thank you for sticking with it to the bitter end so thank you audience is there an audience there are there is an audience oh, I didn't, didn't made aware of that <laughs> I thought it was just me and you <laughs> yeah just me you and the mic bye everybody thank you So in today's episode, me and Jim talked quite a lot about making events. And I'd like to tell you about an event that's coming up on the 25th of April at the Hackney Attic. It's time for Tragic Spring, the next live instalment of my show, Stand Up Tragedy. Stand Up Tragedy is a variety night where people stand up and do tragedy. It's a safe space to talk about unsafe things where we encourage audiences to laugh until they cry and cry until they laugh. We've got comedians, storytellers, spoken word artists and more. Doors open at 7.30. Tickets in advance are £5 which you can buy on the Hackney Picture House website. Tickets on the door are £7. Act 
Knights kick off around about 8 o'clock and the last act should finish just after 10.30. And if you want to stay for longer than that, that's absolutely brilliant. We'll be pushing back the tables and chairs and busting out our tragic dance moves on the tragic dance floor. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like it on Facebook subscribe to it pretty much anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted <laughs>